Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. grab our Bibles this morning and let's turn once again to the gospel according to Matthew chapter number six, Matthew chapter number six. And after you have found that out of respect for God's word, if you'd please stand as we read our text, Matthew chapter number six, beginning in verse number 16. I'm sorry, 19. Thank you, Zachary. You know, at least somebody knows where I am. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one And despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for its truth. We ask you, Father, to teach us your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of a farmer. The farmer came into his house one day very joyfully and confronting his wife with a great big grin, he announced to her that their finest cow had just given birth to twins, one brown and one white. And the farmer went on to tell his wife, he says, I feel the impulse to dedicate one of these cows to the Lord. We will bring them up together. And he says, when they are marketable age, we will sell them and we will keep the proceeds from one and we will give the proceeds of the other to the Lord. And as wives normally do, they go right to the heart of the issue. And the wife looked at this farmer and says, well, which cow is the Lord's, the white one or the brown one? And the farmer said, honey, we don't need to worry about that right now or decide that right now, we're we're just going to bring them up together and we're going to sell them and give the proceeds to the Lord for one. Well, some months went by and one, one day the farmer once again entered the home and he was not as happy as he was several months ago. His wife asked him, she said, Honey, why are you so sad? To which the farmer replied, I have some terrible news. The Lord's cow just died. Why does it always have to be the Lord's cow that dies? 
And we kind of laugh at that story because many times some of us can relate to that. It's always a Lord's cow that dies. You say, well, pastor, what's that mean? Some of us can relate to the fact that we always give God what's left over. We always seem to give God what's left over. In our text in Matthew 6, in verses 25 to 34, our Lord is talking about necessities. Eating, drinking, clothing, a place to sleep. You know, those bare necessities of life that we, have, we need. We have to deal with those things. But here in verses 19 to 24, he's talking about luxuries. In fact, as, as we have been flowing and making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord has really been touching on every area of life. He began by first touching on the Beatitudes, our, our view of ourselves. And then he went to that great passage on salt and light, and he viewed, he gave the sermon on how we view how we fit into the world. And then he went to the passage on the law of God, and we, he began to talk about what our view is of Scripture. And then in that marvelous text from chapter 5, verse 21, to chapter 5, verse 48, he began to speak a sermon on the view of morality. And then when we got to chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, he was discussing our view of our religious service or our religious worship, how we fast, how we pray, or how we give to the needs of others. And then he moves right into our perspective on material things. Luxuries first, and then necessities. And so what the Lord does is he really does touch on every aspect of our life. And as we come to this section, we are confronted with these tremendous statements. First of all, in verse 19, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. And then the corresponding one in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then we come down church, to the whole heart of the matter in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if you look at that verse, verse 21 in the original language, it's very interesting that the order of that verse is actually twisted. It's actually the opposite. And what the Lord literally said was, by the language is, where your heart is first, that's where your treasure is going to be. It's not that you place your treasure here, therefore that's where your heart is. Jesus is saying, this is where your heart is, therefore this is where you place your treasure. And I would encourage every one of us this morning to ask ourselves this very important question of life. In my personal life, in my service to the Lord, whether it be my money, whether it be my time, whether it be my talents, we always need to ask ourselves this question, and I would encourage you to do it this morning, that in your personal life, is it always the Lord's cow that dies? When you get down to it, and you have to decide, is it for you or for him, who is it usually for? What is the real issue of your heart? Where is your heart? Listen. It is where your treasure is. Wherever you put 
Your investments is where you put your heart. If all of our investments are locked away in commodities and accounts and notes and savings and whatever else we have, that's where your heart is. But if I take my investments of my money and my time and my talents and I'm in the process of investing those things in God and God's causes, that too is where my heart's going to be. Now for the Pharisees, their heart was on the earth. They were phonies any way you could cut it. Their morality was totally external and that is what he's saying in chapter 5. Their humility was non-existent. Instead of being salt and light, they were part of the corruption of community. Instead of believing in the law of God, they defied the law of God and substituted it for their own traditions. Everything about the Pharisees that we've seen up to this point was totally external, self-centered, and self-motivated. And in contrast to what the Lord is saying... You must have a right heart. That is why we said that the key verse to the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Theirs was external without a right heart. And what I want, Christ says, is a right heart. And so, church, what you need to keep in mind is your heart and your treasure go together. And they both need to be towards heaven. And what our Lord is talking about here is single-minded devotion to God. And His causes that are undistracted by the world. Now, folks, I believe that when your heart is right your giving will be right as well. And I believe that this is probably the first time in 27 years that I've directly preached on giving. But you can't blame me. I'm an expositor. And these are just the next set of verses before us. Amen? Blame the Holy Spirit. He's got broader shoulders than me. He can handle it. And the purpose, folks, is for me not to hound you about giving. Because you folks are very generous. And there's one thing that I've learned in the last year is many of you folks are very, very generous. And so the purpose is not to hound you about giving, but to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. Because I really do believe that when your heart is right, then your treasure will follow. You know, we see a great illustration of this in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 8, 9, and 10. In Nehemiah, a great revival was taking place. And it says there in Nehemiah chapter 5, 8, verse 5, And Ezra the prophet opened the book in sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. You see where revival starts? It starts with the word of God. Ezra the prophet opened up the word of God. That's where renewal takes place. That's where it starts. And so any salvation, any renewal, any revival that doesn't start with the word of God is a fraud, is a sham, and it will not last. And then we go into verse 8. So not only did he open up the word of God, 
So they read in the book of the law distinctly, and I like this part, and gave the sense. What's that mean? That means that not only did Ezra open it up and read it, but he exegeted it. He expounded it. He explained it to the people. He told the people what the word of God that he was reading, he told them what it meant. If any preacher stands in the pulpit and does not start with the word of God, that's step one. But if he doesn't go to step two and actually explain what the word of God says, he's not done his job. And caused them to understand the reading. Now he gave the word of God. He gave the law of God. And that word of God, that law of God generated a response. And if you go to chapter 9, I'm not going to do that for sake of time. I'll just quote you a couple of verses. But if you go to chapter 9, you will find basically four things that came out of them reading the law. First, there was conviction of sin. They began to confess their sins before God. Second, there was a desire for obedience. Third, there was praise. And then fourth, there was a covenant or promise that they made to God. In Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38... And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. Folks, church, what does a revival produce? It produces conviction of sin. It produces a desire for obedience. It will produce praise and it will produce a covenant or a promise. Now, what is the promise? What was the covenant that they made because of the reading of the word of God? Because their hearts got right. Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 32. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. John MacArthur says this. Now, this point. Now, the point is this. When the heart is made right, the initial response was what? Giving. Giving. When the heart is right, when the people of Israel's heart got right before God, their initial response was to make a covenant of giving. And in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, verse 35, And to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of the years, year by year, unto the house of the Lord. John MacArthur again says, What did they do when revival came? What was their initial act of obedience? Financial giving. Take care of responsibilities given them by God. Now we want to look at this portion of Scripture under three separate headings. And it'll take us a few weeks to get through this, a couple of weeks maybe to get through this. And again, this is all dealing with the luxuries of life. Folks, listen, the purpose, again, is not to hound you about giving, but the purpose is to make sure and let you know that when someone hoards and when someone is a miser and someone refuses to give to the work of God then there's something wrong with the heart we need to understand something very clearly when you give to this church when you give to Emmanuel Baptist Church you are not giving to pay my salary amen Amen. you're not giving to pay my insurance you're not giving to pay my gas you're giving unto the Lord Listen, if you were giving unto me, I don't mind, I don't, I wouldn't blame you for being a miser. <laughs> but we need to understand that the giving in Scripture is giving to the Lord. Giving to the Lord. 
Now, there's three areas, three headings that we want to go over this morning. Number one, we need to be singular in opportunity. Two, we need to be singular in optics. And third, we need to be singular in ownership. Let's look at number one. Uh, We need to be singular in our opportunity. Now, I want you to know from the very beginning that as I studied these passages over the last several weeks, I have found these verses to be both very instructive and very convicting. So you have, to, you have that to look forward to. In verse 19, a singular in opportunity. Jesus says this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. One of the best ways not to be driven by things is to be singularly focused on your treasure. Now Christ begins this command with a negation. Something that you should not do. And the word lay up literally has the idea of Storing up for future use. And by adding the negation, Jesus saying, do not store up for future use. Now, I want to make this also clear to you as well. The idea that Christ is giving here is not against saving money. I think that saving your money is a wise and a noble act. The scriptures speak both about the proper way of saving... And the unwise or the selfish way of saving. You know, it's really amazing to me as I began to study through the scriptures on on this topic. It was amazing to me how many times the scripture actually speaks about financial planning. And as I mention this to you, I want to set this what Christ says in proper context. Because the word of God does talk about financial planning or financial saving. Now, this is not meant to make people uncomfortable who do not at this point in life have a financial plan that works for them. Some people don't. But this is just to set in the proper context of what Christ is teaching here. I came across in Scripture several good financial planning or saving tips from the Scripture. First of all, it was proper financial planning and saving that saved the people of Egypt and those that sojourned to Egypt from other lands. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 34, let Pharaoh do this. You remember the story. And let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. So during the seven plenteous years, Joseph said, you need to plan because the seven years of famine are coming. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take back a fifth part of your grain and your fruit of your ground for the first seven years of plenty because we need to plan for the seven years of famine. Next verse, verse 35, And let them gather all the food of those good years that come and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep the food in the cities. And that food shall be for the store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt that the land perish not through the famine. 
It was through the financial planning and wisdom that God gave Joseph that the people of Egypt and the other places that sojourned to Egypt were saved during the famine. Christ Himself, in teaching about the parable in Luke chapter 19, verses 13 and 19, praised and called a, one of the servants a wise servant because he did what? He invested. He invested his master's money. He called the foolish servant the one who did what? Went out and buried it, hoarded it. The New Testament congregation, they are praised that they saved to help the lesser privileged brethren. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 26, For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. At the point, and the point is that giving to the needs of others is a way to use your funds honorably for the glory of God. Another means of, fi of, financial, of good financial planning and investments is to invest in the work of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And folks, listen, the reason this is called investing in the work of the Lord is because, if you will notice, there is no required amount or percentage that is given in the investment of the work of the Lord. Giving to the work of the Lord, I need you to understand, Giving to the work of the Lord is a free will giving and completely discretionary. Keeping this principle in mind, though, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, But this I say, he which soweth, what? Sparingly shall also reap. And he that soweth shall reap. Every man according as he, here's the key, every man according as he purposeth in his what? heart so let him give how does paul say a person should give not begrudgingly not of necessity but out of the heart because god loves a cheerful giver and i love verse eight and god is able to make all grace abound to you folks god will never be indebted to you he is able to make all grace abound to you that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good Work. Now, I will mention this and go on because I have a complete sermon on this subject and I'm not going here this morning and you're not going to throw me into it. But we need to understand, giving to the Lord, the voluntary giving to the Lord that is mentioned here is not to be confused with the Old Testament required giving of tithing. Okay? Ruh -ruh. Okay? In fact, I want you to understand Again, I'm going to mention this and go on because I have a sermon on this and I'm not going to, you're not going to draw me into that, so you stop it right now. In fact, in the Old Testament, there were three tithes that the Old Testament people were, were required to pay. That's right, you heard me right, three tithes. They were to give those tithes, those monies, to the nation. They funded the democracy or the theocracy of the nation of Israel. 
First of all, there was a tithe of the fruit of the land because the land is holy unto the Lord. They were to give a tenth part of the fruit of their land to the Lord, and that's found in Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30. And then there was a tithe that was required to give to support the high priest. That is found in Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 and 26. And then at the end of the third year, the nation was required to bring a tithe into the individual cities. Now you remember this. In the year three and the year six of the seven-year sabbatical system, because remember the Lord commanded that that every seven years the land do what? The people were to give the land a rest. But at the end of the third year and the end of the sixth year, they were to bring a tenth part of the fruit of the land, not to the central sanctuary, but to the individual cities in the land. And that tithe was used to feed the Levites, the orphans, the widows, and the strangers or foreigners who lived in Israel. And that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 to 29. Because the Levites needed to be supported by the tithes of the nation. Because remember, when the land was distributed, the Levites didn't get anything. They were the one tribe that didn't receive anything. Now, get this. By the time you paid all three tithes, again, these tithes were required to fund the nation. We're not talking about the work of the Lord here. The Lord was never talking about his work. He was talking about funding the nation. And by the time the nation paid all three required tithes, they were paying 23% of their income to fund the national government of Israel to take care of public feasts and to provide for the welfare of those in need. Now, a modern parallel to that would be Romans chapter 13 and verse 6, where Paul says, For this cause pay you tribute also, for they are also God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. But even in the Old Testament, giving to God, now hear me out, hear me clearly, giving to God was not regulated as to an amount and was always, always given as a free will offering. You say, well, Pastor, what about Malachi when God says, you have robbed me in your tithes? That's referring to the three tithes given to the nation. That's not referring to giving money to God. That's referring to giving tithes to the, to the nation. Giving to the Lord's work in the Old Testament was always a free will offering. In, Gen- in Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that what? Giveth it willingly with his what? Heart. Ye shall take my offering. In Exodus chapter 35 and verse 21. And they came everyone whose heart stirred him up and everyone whom his spirit made willing. I like what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. You see what the principle is, folks? The principle of giving to the work of the Lord is you give to the Lord of the first fruits of your increase. You don't wait, you won't wait until the cow dies and then decide that that was the Lord's. 
you give it to him according to Solomon. You give to the Lord out of the first fruits. And Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, There is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but attendeth to poverty. You see that principle? If you scatter your wealth, if you scatter how God has blessed you, then God will make sure you're taken care of. But if you hoard it, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. And the point of Scripture, church, is that giving to the work of the Lord is a wise and noble investment. And that is not what the Lord is talking about in chapter 6, verse 19, when He tells us not to lay up. The point is, is that when you invest in the work of the Lord, it is a good thing, isn't it? When you invest in the work of the Lord, it's a good thing. When you store up with the Lord, it is a good and noble thing. Because we've already seen in Scripture that he that sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And he that, and he that uh, sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. We've already seen that. If you invest in the Lord cheaply, what will you get back? What's the text say, church? If you invest with the Lord cheap, you're going to get back cheap. If you invest in the Lord bountifully, now he didn't say it was 10%. Did he? In fact, the word tithe, see y'all drew me into this, I dare you. You see the word tithe in the New Testament is never mentioned but in a negative sense. He didn't say that it was a particular amount. He said just give as God is what? Blessed you. Some people can give 20. Some people can give five. And so the fact is, is that with giving and investing in the work of God, the point is, it's not an amount of economics. It's not an accounting thing with God. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And you give to the Lord abundantly, He will give back to you abundantly. And as I said before, the Lord will not be indebted to us. And so, of course, what Christ has in mind here in chapter 6 is wise investments or giving faithfully and cheerfully to the Lord. Listen, this is not the kind of storing up that Christ is indicting the Pharisees for. The Bible recognizes the fact that having sound plans helps to ensure a successful venture. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which have no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. What, do you, what is he saying about the ant? She does what? She pl- works. She plans. She plans. In Proverbs 21, verse 5, The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty only to one. Why, isn't that interesting? The thoughts or the planning of the diligent tend only to plenteousness. In Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 18, Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuseth instruction, but he that regardeth reproof shall be honored. The kind of storing up that Jesus is talking about, folks, is the kind of storing up with no thought for anyone or anything else other than your selfish greed. It is reminiscent of the story that Jesus Christ told in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 12, verse 16, He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? 
because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. He said, this is what I'll do. I'll share it with those in need. I'll give it to my neighbor in need. I'll invest it in the work of the Lord. This is what I'll do. I'll, I'll tear down my barns. If my barns aren't big enough, I'll just build bigger ones. If my stocks aren't big enough, well, I'll just put them in something bigger. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting something in bigger stocks, is it? If you're able to do that, God bless you. But if you do that instead of investing in the Lord, that's when it becomes sinful, folks. Investments and stocks and CDs are not sinful unless you do those instead of investing with the Lord. You need to invest in the Lord first, and if the Lord blesses you, then you do that. He says, I'll pull down my barns and build bigger ones. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, be merry. You don't have anything to worry about. Man, I'm set for life. But God said to him, Thou fool. Well, when God calls you a fool, that's pretty serious. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see the point? We spend all of our life, all of our time laying up stuff for ourselves, storing up things for ourselves. Listen, the day is coming when we're leaving that stuff. Whether it be by the way of the rapture or by the grave, we're leaving that stuff. And then Jesus says to that man, now who, who are all these things going to belong to? But you see the point in verse 21? So is he that what? Layeth up treasure for himself. So Christ says here, Lay not up for what? Yourselves. Yourselves. You see, that's the important pronoun here. Don't do these things for yourself. The word treasure there, and it comes, it comes from the, basically the same Greek term uh, that, where we get our, that the layup comes from, and it's where we get our English word thesaurus, which means a treasure of words. And Jesus basically is saying, do not treasure up treasures for yourself. That's so what he says there in verse 19. You know, the Greek word also carries the idea of, of, of stacking or laying out horizontally like you would stack coins one on top of another. And in this context, in of this passage, the idea is that of stockpiling or hoarding and therefore pictures wealth not being used. The money or the wealth is simply just stored up for safekeeping. It's kept for the keeper's sake to maybe get an, uh, uh, create an a, a, a environment of wealth or some type of security. Now I want you to understand too that this passage and the other many passages, Jesus Christ does not advocate poverty as a means of spirituality. Just like Jesus doesn't advocate wealth as a means of spirituality, He does not indicate poverty as a means of spirituality either. There's only one time where Jesus Christ told somebody to sell whatever he has, and that's found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. And the reason Jesus Christ told that young man to sell everything that he has is because that man's money had become an idol. That man's money had become a barrier between himself and the lordship of Jesus Christ. The problem was not his wealth. The problem was his unwillingness to part with it. 
And the fact is, church, that God expects us to be generous to other people. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, John says this, And whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You know, I have lost track of the amount of times that I have either entered the church or exited this church. And I've had one of you men come up to me. I've never had a lady do it, but I've had one of you men. I'm sure it was the wife's idea. I have one of you men come up to me and shake my hand. And I come away and there's a $50 bill in my hand. I had a man come up to me just about a month ago and said, Pastor, come here. And he came and says, I love you. And he shook my hand. He gave me $40. He said, go have lunch on me. Folks, that's investing in the work of the Lord. Not because he gave it to me. He gave it to the Lord. I was just a vessel. That's all I am. I'm at the end of the track. I'm only part of the deal as God makes me part of the deal. You're giving to the Lord. You say, hot dog, Pastor, you just told me that the Bible, New Testament doesn't require tithing. No, 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 no. The New Testament requires you to give as God's blessed you. And if God has blessed you and you can give 30%, then God expects you to give 30% to him. If God blesses you and you can only give five, then God expects you to give five to him because it's an issue of the heart. It's not a matter of economics with God, church. It's not a matter of accounting. It's a matter of the heart. And we don't need to be tied down to numbers and percentages and give grudgingly, well, if I don't give my 10%, God's not going to bless me this week. Perish that kind of preaching that says that if you don't give a certain percentage, God's not going to bless you. That's not scriptural. Now, if you give grudgingly and you don't give from the heart, then God might not bless you. But if God blesses you and you can give 5% and you give that 5% willingly and joyfully to the work of God, then God may take you to a place one day where you can give 10%, 15%, 20%. Because you're investing in the work of God from the heart, not from the pocketbook. you got far too many preachers are standing in pulpits and their churches are not blessed because they're worried about preaching percentages and numbers. And they're not so concerned about preaching the heart. Jesus is not talking about percentages. He's talking about the heart. He expects us to be thankful in whatever He gives us, whether it be riches or poverty. Whatever He gives us. Listen, in comparison to third world countries, we all live in luxury. Every person here today came to church in a vehicle. Or a horse-drawn wagon. Whatever the case may be, you got here without walking. My wife was telling me about over in Papua New Guinea of how these people have to confiscate or, or load up into a bus, a, a flatbed truck to, to come to church because nobody over there has a car. You and I live in laps of luxury compared to other people. 
Now, you may not live in luxury compared to somebody else here, but you live in luxury compared to a lot of people in the world, and so do I. And so we are to be thankful. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. John MacArthur says that verse is specifically directed to those who are rich in this present world, and yet it does not command or even suggest that they divest themselves of their wealth, but rather warns them not to be conceited about it or to trust in it. That's the issue. It is right to provide for your families, to make reasonable plans for the future, to make wise investments and have money to carry on business, to give to the poor and to support the work of the Lord. Those are all wise investments. In fact, during his exceptionally long ministry, which spanned most of the 18th century, John Wesley earned a considerable amount of money by his published sermons and other works. Yet when he left, he, only, he left only 28 pounds, which is about $38 when he died, because he continually took money in and gave it back out to the work of the Lord. It was a constant cycle with him. But folks, listen, being dishonest, being greedy, being covetous, being stingy, and being miserly about your possessions, that's what's wrong, and that's what Jesus is condemning in verse 19. But to honestly save, earn, and give is wise and good. To hoard and spend only on ourselves is not only unwise, it's sinful. And the key to everything that Jesus is saying is yourself. When we accumulate possessions only for ourselves, whether to hoard or to spend selfishly and extravagantly, those possessions, church, become idols. Listen, it is possible that both treasures on earth and treasures in heaven can involve money and other material things. Possessions that are wise, that are given wisely and lovingly and willingly and generously, for kingdom purposes can be a means of accumulating heavenly possessions. But when you hoard and store up, they're not only spiritual hindrances, but they're subject to loss through moth, rust, and thieves. There's a reason why the Lord used the term moth. In ancient times, wealth was particularly and frequently measured by in part by your clothing. Now, in our days, clothing is so mass-produced that sometimes we miss the fact that in ancient times, clothes represented a considerable investment. The best clothes were made out of wool. Moths love wool. And even the richest person would, have, would find it difficult to protecting their clothes from that insect. Wealth is also gained by grain, as we saw from the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12. Now the word rust there in your text in verse 19, literally the root, Greek root word means the eating. It means to eat. And it's used 11 times in the New Testament, and 6 of those 11 times it is translated food. And it seems best to translate this portion of the verse since grain was a major part of wealth in those, those days, that the reference is to the grain being eaten by rats, mice, worms, or other insects. And of course, almost any kind of investment, any kind of wealth is subject to being stolen. In fact, people would do this. They would take their money and they would go into the earth and they would dig up the earth and they would bury their treasures so that it would pro prohibit people from stealing them, which is why Jesus used the Greek word there, which means 
breakthrough. The word breakthrough in the Greek comes from a root word that means to dig up. He could be referring to someone going into a field and digging up somebody else's treasure and making off with them. John MacArthur says, nothing we own is completely safe from destruction or theft. And if we, and even if we keep our possessions perfectly secure during our entire lives, we are certainly separated from them at death. When our time, energy, and possessions are used to serve others and further the Lord's work. Folks, listen, they build up heavenly resources that are completely free from destruction and theft. When we invest in that kind of possession, that is where the text says in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. Again, John MacArthur says heavenly security is the only absolute security. Christ goes on to say that a person's most treasured possession and his deepest motives and desires are inseparable. He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. They will either, folks, listen, both be heavenly or they will both be earthly. It is impossible to have one earthly and one heavenly. Because James says in James chapter 4 that whosoever is a friend of the world is a what? Enemy of God. The heart must always be right. And when the heart is right, everything else falls in place. Jesus is not just saying that if we put our treasures in the right place, then our hearts will be right. But the location of our treasures indicates that our heart is. Because, folks, listen, spiritual problems are always a problem of the heart. Because sinful acts always come from the heart. Righteous acts comes out of a righteous heart. And if we have the mentality that we're consumed in our heart of accumulating wealth for ourselves and hoarding it, Rather than investing it. Because let's be honest, investing what belongs to the Lord anyway, right? You don't own anything, neither do I. It all belongs to the Lord. And so if we refuse to invest what already belongs to the Lord in the first place in order to do the Lord's work or help other people, when, we, when somebody refuses to do that, folks, listen, that's a serious heart problem. That's a serious heart problem. When the tabernacle was built in Exodus chapter 35, verse 21, it says that, that, they were, that their heart was what? Stirred up. And they were made willing by the Spirit. When plans were being made to build the temple in 1 Chronicles 29, 9, the people rejoiced that they offered what? Willingly. Because the perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. God's principle has always been for his people. In Proverbs 3, 9, I'll give you this again. Honor the Lord with thy substance and the first fruits of all that increase. And once again, Paul assures us that if we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. If we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. God's formula for earning dividends that are both permanent and guaranteed is to invest in the work of God first. So what's Christ's answer to the hypocritical religion of the day that was only interested in amassing wealth? Be singular in your opportunity. Don't hoard up treasures and forget the work of God. Now, folks, listen, if you're able to do both, God bless you, right? That's not what Jesus is condemning. 
Jesus isn't, as, I, as, I, as I've taken you through pretty deep here, Jesus isn't condemning saving. He isn't condemning investing. He's, con- he's condemning doing those things instead of investing in the Lord. Because you say, that, because you say to yourself, man, the Lord's cow died. The Lord's cow died. Because where you put your treasures is where your heart is. And where your treasure is, that will reveal the true nature of your heart, won't it? Jesus doesn't condemn saving. He condemns hoarding and not giving to the work of the Lord. We need to have singular. We need to be singular in our opportunity. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven because where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father.